Welcome to another episode of Morning Coffee with your host, Rick Alexander. I started this show to talk about all of the interesting, complex, paradoxical, and sometimes uncomfortable aspects of the human experience. If you get anything from this show, the greatest compliment you could give me is to share this show with somebody that you think the message may resonate with or to head to iTunes and give us a five-star review. Additionally, if you want to interact with me, you can follow me at rickalexander underscore on Instagram. Without further ado, on to the show. Welcome back to the MCP. My name is Rick Alexander, and today I'm joined by trauma-informed life coach, Julian Dallas. Thanks for uh, joining me again. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. For those of you listening that have been listening for a while, you know this is Julian's second time on this show, and I'll link up the first one in the show notes of this episode if you're a new listener, because that first one, we really dove deep into a lot of the philosophy behind your work, I think, in in attachment theory. So it's a really good sort of introduction to attachment. I wanted to start this one off. This question was posed to me by a friend who's doing some research for a documentary, and I wanted to just see your thoughts on it, and we'll just see where it goes. Is there a difference for you between growth and healing? Oh, what a beautiful question. What's the documentary? Uh, it's about post-traumatic growth. Right. So it's sort of right at that intersection. Yeah. I think ultimately, no. I think when we get really down to the the grassroots and the bare roots of everything, there's not too much of a difference. When we grow, we expand. And healing really allows our self-protection mechanism in the autonomic nervous system to trust expansion. So one doesn't really happen without another. And like you said, for anyone just tuning in for the first time to this podcast, I'd highly recommend listening to the first one because we do really touch on the basis of attachment systems. But attachment systems are essentially your, your autonomic nervous system's ability to be in relationship. So mm. that's what it's designed for. So if we have wounds in our attachment system, it's going to be wired towards self-protection instead of connection. And in order to grow, you really need to be in connection with yourself, with other people. But if you have a trauma pattern that tells you that, no, that's not safe, you have to stay in self-protection, you may grow a little bit, but you're gonna contract again and you'll never actually feel that you get momentum. So I think it's one and the same. Yeah, that that was essentially my answer as well. Um, yeah, I I thought you know, it maybe it it isn't for everybody, but if you grow without healing, and so if we'll just use this modality or or this philosophy for now, if you grow without having a secure connection to the outside world, to to yourself, to other people, what you're doing is bypassing, right? Like you you may be spiritually bypassing maybe i mean in some way you're going to have to find that you continuously have to disassociate from your life in order to get that feeling of of growth and so there's probably a point where if you grow without healing that it will actually be pretty counterproductive in some way Uh, yeah Yeah, really good point that you bring that up too because 
a lot of people, especially in the personal development world, or if people are accustomed to trying to grow and get better, they probably have a lot of knowledge. So they're growing in one area of their life, which mm -hmm. is the mind power. And if they never really have the opportunity to integrate that and understand deeply how that is affecting their experience of living, then absolutely, you're going to start creating this dissonance between what they know and what's true for them. And that can be really painful and it can actually exacerbate pre-existing trauma patterns because now they just have more evidence for why they're not good enough or why mm. they're not getting it. Like, oh, I just keep, you know, I keep reading and I keep learning, but I still, I still don't get it. And I still make the same mistakes and I still feel the same. I still have the same insecurities. What's going on? Right. And of course, insert you know, your deepest, darkest thoughts about, well, it must be because you're a piece of shit. <laughs> yes, yes, totally. Obviously not true, but that's right. a pattern. Yeah. Right, right. So this is a really good point because I think what we tend to do, so if you grow in the area of knowledge, for example, what you're counting on is that your ego strength is going to be enough to will your way into a new way of being. And I think what happens, and I'm noticing this a lot with people, including myself, to some degree, is that you feel as though you can will yourself into a new way of being. The problems that we're talking about when we talk about attachment, this is a nervous system level issue. So this is soma, this is body. And so this, the issue at hand here is actually deeper than ego. Like it, it, it's something more foundational to your existence than your egoic structure, which is really thought patterns formed between one and seven years old. And so, and so what happens is you're like, you have the information, you know what you should do. You go into the world and you don't, you don't fucking do it. And then you, you end up in this sort of shame cycle where you beat yourself up for not doing what you should do without realizing that the problem is much deeper than the level at which you are trying to attack it. Would you add anything to that? Or have you seen this play out? I mean, this is a bit, you said it beautifully. This is a massive part of my work. And it's one of the most common, not a misconception about trauma, but a misconception about growth and really you know, the word mindset gets thrown around a lot. And so people are like, oh, I just have to change my mindset. So they kind of put all of their eggs in one basket. Mm -hmm. As long as I just think my way out of this or have a good mindset or expand my mindset, be your money mindset all the time, right? <laughs> yep. Well, what people don't realize, like you presenced, is that your mindset, your egoic world, your thought patterns, even the amount of oxygenation that your brain has access to, is a byproduct of the autonomic nervous system. So guess what? If your autonomic nervous system is wired towards self-protection and not connection, where you're gonna, you're gonna have limited access to what you even have available in your prefrontal cortex, which is where we come up with our thought life. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to solve problems that exist, like you said, in the nervous system with a part of our human experience that is like, 2% of that whole system. And okay. so then naturally, like you said, it has this shame cycle. People think, oh, I must be getting it wrong because this is what I'm being sold. This is what I'm being told. That if I just get my mindset right, or if I just outthink, you know, if I'm just smart enough, yes. crafty enough, I'll get yep. this right. 
And, you know, it really, it becomes more and more and more painful, the more people trust that, trust that process, and don't stop and ask themselves, is this working for me? Mm-hmm. Thinking my way out of this, getting me anywhere? Or am I just repeating patterns that I've always known? Right, right. Yeah. And it's important to understand at least for someone like me who's dominant thinking function that when you're in thought you're actually not in reality like it's mm-hmm. it's a different level of being in itself like like the like knowledge is a emanation of being right it, it derives from being but it's not foundational to being itself and so it's really easy for you to stay in these thoughts of going back and forth knowing what you should do and nothing in reality is actually changing And then, you know, the other thing that I see, so we're talking a bit about the people that want to think their way out of the problem. The other one that I see, which is why I think you see such a rise in the biohacking world is people say, well, if I could just manipulate the environment enough, if I could just get the right factors in place, then my problems again will be solved. And and I'm not sure if there's a relationship or if you found a relationship between um bringing the body into harmony with with the outside world or i don't know can you speak to that have you seen anything like that uh, arrive in your clients absolutely yeah mm. so when we talk about attachment patterns there's three well there's four dominant ones but the one that tends to show up a lot with trauma work or people that are interested in trauma work is the disorganized attachment so that doesn't necessarily mean that you know your papers are <laughs> present yeah, yeah. That's mine. <laughs> me too that was that was my pattern for a really long time and it still shows up sometimes when I'm really stressed hmm. it's important to presence that for people that you know there's we don't become something different we just learn to be more secure with our relational patterns that were embedded in the nervous system at a super early age mm-hmm. so having the disorganized attachment doesn't mean that you know your desk is messy although chances are it probably probably is but essentially what it is in terms of being in relationship is come here go away come here go away and that's not just with other people it's with yourself with your body with your mindset with your finances with your purpose in life right you might get close and then you go oh this is too scary or boring or not enough or not what i thought it was insert whatever mind narrative comes up to make sense of this really unconscious physical response that you're having. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about people fragmenting their experience with their mind, okay, I'm going to fix this with the mind. That is a byproduct of the disorganized attachment because it's being one foot in one foot out. So they're not trusting that they can fully show up as all of themselves in the world because that is far too risky, far too threatening. And it makes sense because when they were little children, they couldn't, you know, if they showed up with all of themselves or maybe vulnerable parts of themselves, they were shut down or they got mixed messages or they were punished. So the nervous system develops this beautiful response to be one foot in and one foot out. So the interesting thing is that we can also see that flipped with people trying to do that with their body, right? So it's still really one foot in, one foot out, but it's saying, if I just eat the right food, go on the right diet, 
sleep the right amount, get the right amount of sunshine, biohacking, listening to the right podcast about my body, then I'll get this right. But it's still only one piece of their entire experience. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're emotionally flexible. It doesn't necessarily mean that they have you know, spiritual meaning in their lives, or even, and the most important piece is that they're able to connect deeply with other people. Mm. Because that is the biggest sign of healing this autonomic pattern. So the benefits are that you might feel better, you'll have probably less inflammation in the body, you'll be performing better. But then guess what, if these unconscious patterns have not been addressed, well, your performance is also going to become a part of your ego. And your health is also going to become a part of your ego, right? The biohacking part of you becomes another part of your identity that is really secretly not fully in on mm -hmm. any one thing. Yeah. And the bitch of it is it'll work for a bit, right? It'll work until it doesn't. Yes. Um, and so you mentioned something there that like, when you feel stressed, you'll feel the attachment style you'll feel the symptoms of the attachment style that you that you um what would you say like developed in your life um that shows up so so and this is what happens right is you you get on the diet you do the thing and it does work for a little while right so what are the symptoms or what are the what what kind of things tend to exacerbate the attachment style if you will what kind of lifestyle things tend to flare up that would cause you to have some sort of relapse in your, you know, whether your pattern is to shut down or your pattern is to flee, um, what kind of lifestyle things tend to cause that? Yeah. So again, with the autonomic nervous system, I feel like I'm going to be saying that word a lot <laughs> during this podcast. Do you want to define it right quick for people that don't remember 10th yeah, grade? Totally. Yeah. Good, good thinking. So the autonomic nervous system is basically like the foundation, the fabric, the primary step that your nervous system is built on. So it's the same part of your nervous system that controls your heartbeat. It has, it goes through all of our facial muscles. So it controls expression. So it allows, you know, us to communicate emotionally with other people and also to pick up danger cues and threat and cues of safety in other people's facial expressions. Mm. It controls our vocal cords. The, the main component of this is called the vagal nerve. And that's, um, it basically means wandering nerve. So it goes all the way down into your heart, to your lungs, your diaphragm, your digestive system, where most of your serotonin is made, your reproductive organs. It basically is keeping all the basic stuff functioning. So its only job evolutionarily is to keep you alive. So that's why it trumps thoughts. Mm -hmm. Because if you're not alive, it doesn't really matter what you're thinking about. Right. So we have this complex system evolutionarily that is always on the lookout for threat, cues of threat and then cues of safety. So the autonomic nervous system is actually neurocepting threat 24 seven. And we use the word neurocept because it's deeper than perception. So perception requires some kind of cognitive awareness. It's slower, right? When you you can cognitively digest something, you're aware that you're perceiving it. You have a stance, an opinion, an idea about something. Neuroception happens, you know, at a 
fraction of that. It's, Is that intuitive sense? Uh, well, it would be that the part of the brain that can be translated into intuition mm -hmm. would be a part of that. Okay. Yeah. Sort of picking up on patterns that you're not necessarily cognizant of. It's like scanning the environment. It's, it's. Yeah, it's a little bit more primal than that. Okay. Because it's like I said, it's only its only job is keeping you alive. So okay. intuition. In order to access intuition, we, we need to have some sort of foundation of safety in the nervous system because intuition is mixed with desire, it's mixed with purpose, it's mixed with uh, social cues. Whereas the overall autonomic nervous system, if it's stuck in a pattern of self-protection, so if it's chronically neurocepting threat, either internally or externally, you're not gonna have much sense of intuition. What's, what's gonna end up happening is that you'll be chronically on the lookout for threat, even mm -hmm. if it's not there. And that means in relationships, you know, you might co constantly think that your partner is not loving you enough, not respecting you, not, you know, maybe they're too much and they're getting in your space. So there's always a threat. Sounds like this is what gets stuck on in like a PTSD response. Oh, totally. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, yeah. cool. It's yeah, there's different parts of this autonomic response and we can get into that. Um, what was your, I totally got sidetracked. What was the initial question there? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't remember. <laughs> We're just so much juiciness here. Yeah. Yeah. I started, you know, you started talking about this, this sort of, uh, neuroception and I just started thinking about all of the ways that that might connect to my thoughts. <laughs> Yeah. So it came back to me, you were asking me, you know, how does, what sort of lifestyle factors trigger the disorder right. attachment in me when it shows up? Mm -hmm. So the interesting thing about that is it tends to be less about lifestyle factors and it tends to be more what I'm expanding into. Now I want to elaborate on this because it, it might be a, a challenging concept, but because our autonomic system is a relational system and we developed these attachment styles like very well developed under the age of three it's our blueprint for experiencing the world so for example the disorganized attachment can feel really threatened in consistency because it's accustomed to a high level of chaos and disorganization in childhood and then basically built it the blueprint for how you are a living, breathing human being off of this expectancy, this neuro expectancy for chaos. Mm. So counterintuitively, when things are consistent and we actually are two feet in instead of one foot in, one foot out, we're fully saying yes to ourselves, fully saying yes to other people, that's actually where the threat response will start to increase. So most people who identify with having that disorganized attachment will self-sabotage before they can even experience consistency because it's so unconsciously threatening to them. Their nervous system basically says, this is new. We don't know what this is. This could mean death. Mm -hmm. So it's easier to recreate the environment that you learn to survive in is essentially what's okay. happening. Okay. And so, so it sounds like depending on what your attachment style is, it's going to have a different trigger. Yes. Okay. 
So for me, for example, and a lot of my clients, and you'll probably resonate with this too, is when we're doing new things. And I don't mean pivoting and doing new things because that's a really potent part of the disorganized detachment as, as well. Of like, I'm gonna travel to this new place and I'm gonna start this project and this one and this one and this one and this one. Mm -hmm. But when we're staying consistent with new projects that mean something to us and we don't bail, right? That can mean relationships, right? Staying consistent in a relationship, learning to repair a fight in a relationship instead of being, see, you know, this, it's not gonna work out, I knew it. Or mm -hmm. see, this person is just toxic, I, I knew this. Mm -hmm. Ooh, what happens if you actually work through that and you stay consistent and you get closer with your partner and yourself because of it? Mm. Ooh, that's when the nervous system goes, ah, what is Yeah, as on? you're saying that, I'm like, I just want to get up from my desk right now. Like, I feel the visceral. Yeah, that's so great. Yeah. Hmm. So it actually surprisingly gets activated when we are doing the things that we want to do, when we're getting what we want, when we're staying mm. consistent with our lives in every area. Because what does not feel threatening is repeating the pattern of come here, go away, stop, start, one foot in, one foot out, because that's familiar. Mm -hmm. So like you said, that type of behavior works until it doesn't. Right. When it doesn't work anymore, that's when we get this friction. And that's when we are willing to take the risk towards the discomfort of staying consistent because the pain of staying familiar has increased so intensely. Right. So this is the moment that to me, it sounds like this is where ego strength, and you might even call this moral courage is actually really important, right? When you, when the ruptures happened, or get in the fight, right? And then you're feeling the nervous system want to recreate the environment that it's learned to survive in, but like choosing to move in closer, right? Choosing to um, work through this with a coach, like choosing to work through it with a therapist. Like that to me feels like when ego strength is actually important. Like when you get close to the fire, when the, when you get close to something that's psychically activating and then, you know, you have to like kind of pendulate in and out, but then coming back in and doing the work to stay in that place of connection, that to me feels like when, where the ego really matters. I, you use the word courage and really none of this could be possible without courage mm. because there is, you know, almost literally when people are, like you said, pendulating back and forth between that desire that wants to pull them back into what they know. And then the risk of, well, that's not working. I have to try something different, but it's so scary. It's literally a new frontier in their mm -hmm. nervous system. Their nervous system has never paved a road in that direction before. It is darkness, almost literal darkness. <laughs> right. The nervous system is concerned. Right. And as human beings, as mammals, especially, we perceive darkness as imminent death. Mm. Right. So totally. that threat response is so damn real. And anyone who's been struggling with these patterns, I just want them to hear that and feel that mm. like it is real when you're trying to change these patterns that it's scary as hell. And it's so important in those moments to get out of your head because your, your brain will try to make a narrative about why it's scary, but guess where the narrative is coming from? Right. 
the old pattern. Right. Right. Because that's all it knows. So we actually have to muster up courage and you presenced as well that working with a coach is a key to this. A coach, a counselor, a therapist, anyone who feels safe to Mm -hmm. you, because not everyone is going to help you through this transition. As we know, not everyone is a safe person, but because the, the system is a relational one, when we're up against that frontier and we're trying to do something that we've never done before, and we just have this weird roadblock that says, don't you dare. Well, it's another safe, secure, and consistent nervous system that can say, I hear you. I see you. It's okay to keep going. And on the autonomic level, that is a safety cue. Hmm. So other regulated nervous systems can actually be the beacons in that dark space of it's okay, take one step step out. And then as you take that step out, you illuminate a whole new reality and you start to create new lived experiences that disconfirm the old autonomic systems. There's just, they're facts, mm-hmm. right? They're, well, I have evidence contrary to what I know. I always believed that it couldn't have what I want, but now I've created evidence that actually that's possible. Is it still uncomfortable as hell? Do I still want to bail? Do I still want to, you know, sabotage sometimes? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Which is why in this work, we, I say often, you know, new level, new devil, because these disorganized attachments or the avoidant or the anxious they you know each time you come up on a bigger expansion talk about healing and growth that that safety pattern is going to come back not to punish you but to just to check in with you like are you sure because for 30 something 40 something 50 something years of your life you did it this way so are you sure this is okay and so you're going to have that this feels Mm -hmm. so uncomfortable feeling and then you can bring what you know back in you can bring the courage back in bring the support back in and say and not just say but also be reminded by your support system that this is happening because you're expanding not because you're doing anything wrong or that you should turn back and quit right the natural response to doing the thing that you've always wanted to do Yes. And, and so that sucks for people, right? It's something to really sit with though, is this idea that, you know, when you're trying to work through these patterns, you're activating the pattern. And so it would be easier if in fact you weren't trying to be the person that wanted to grow in the first place to some degree, at some point, it's all going to close in on you anyway. Um, and you'll find you just can't escape from yourself enough. But I think that just recognizing that a lot of the act, you know, a lot of this activation, when you try to grow, it's because you're trying to grow and you're moving into the patterns. And one thing that I found that's one thing I found in common with myself, and I bet everybody listening to this podcast is in this place as well. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. But we are being called to disrupt patterns that have been alive for generations, right? Like our parents, had terrible attachment styles and didn't know how to mirror to us when we were young. And so that just continues to, to like, these things are strong. I think that's what I'm getting at. Like these things are generationally strong. And so traumas tend to perpetuate through cycles of, of families. 
And so when you're working through this, it's like, yes, it's yours. It's also your family's. You were, you were handed this attachment style in, in some way and, and whatever traumas you've dealt with, like those are almost assuredly passed on. So just recognizing that you're being called to change the world for people you're never going to meet. And it's really important work. Um, and you're against, you know, years worth of patterning. Yeah. And that's where that ego strength, as you called it, and that courage actually has a place to land because mm. it actually has meaning surrounding it. Right. There's generational patterns of trauma, hundreds, sometimes thousands of years of ancestral stuff. And it's totally. yours now. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. And that's that's the like radical responsibility piece. It's like it's yours now. And guess what? It's not your fault. Mm-hmm. Taking responsibility for the discomfort and the activation that you feel now in reparenting yourself and healing these wounds. It's your responsibility, but it didn't start with you. Mm. So there can be a lot of depth and spiritual meaning in realizing that, hey, this is hard because you're doing something that no one in your family lineage was able to do, including your parents. Totally, totally. And I get just goosebumps even just thinking about that because it's so real. Mm -hmm. And that's what all, like being the transitional character in your family unit is so freaking powerful because it's a lot of responsibility. Right. And it can be scary, but it we can also use it as an intrinsic strength of, okay, the, my pain, my activation, my struggles, that's all my responsibility, but so is my choice. So mm. is my choice to do something different. So is my choice to walk this uncomfortable path. No one's making me do this. Mm-hmm. I'm choosing to do this. I'm the transitional character, baby. Right, right. Yeah, you know, right. That can be freaking powerful totally yeah in in myth you know that's that hero energy like waking up inside of you and and that's your call right um you know it's interesting too i'm thinking in the west we tend to want to resolve the polarity of opposites by vanquishing what we don't like right vanquishing the evil vanquishing the discomfort in the East, they tend to resolve tension of opposites by reducing the tension between the opposites. And so I'm thinking of something like a yoga practice where, you know, you can move into a stretch. You could just imagine this, even if you don't do yoga, and you're going to hit a point of discomfort in that stretch, right? Well, that discomfort's actually an ally to you going deeper. In the West, the idea would be, let me just push through this discomfort, right? Let me shove through it. Let me force through it. That tends to be how we go about the world. But there's a whole other philosophy in which you can approach discomfort, which is that that discomfort is your ally. And so you can get right up against it and you can you can breathe into it and you can stay with it. And slowly but surely, you'll find that you can get deeper and you'll kind of and I think a lot of this kind of growth work is the same way. It's like you come up against that edge and there are layers to this and and you stay there if you can stay in the fire and you'll get you will be gifted the capacity to go deeper. Um, But I think it's when we try to like shove our way through it, nervous system is stronger than ego, it doesn't work, we back out of the relationship or whatever it is that's causing it, um, that we end up kind of living this life where it's like really high highs and really low lows. 
Well, I was going to say, and also like if you're for like someone like me, you really relied on those low lows to do your work, right? For for your art. Um, and so you actually have to learn a new way of being in the world when that's your, when that's your, uh, yeah, when that's, when that's the life you're living. Absolutely. You just painted a beautiful picture for the audience of exactly what the disorganized attachment <laughs> yeah. looks like. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And a practice like yoga is such a, a beautiful example of creating a safe container so that your nervous system can tolerate hanging out at that edge. Mm -hmm. Right, because that's a lot easier to do in a yoga practice where you've got someone. Well, here's another tidbit here someone is with you there coaching you, so you are not alone, right? 100% powerful piece of this. It's a lot easier to do that when you're being reminded to focus on your breath, when you're being encouraged, you're told that it's safe. Mm -hmm. It's another thing to hang in the tension when you and your partner who have a history are you know going at it and you're both activated and <laughs> totally you are not going to be able to hang in that tension unless you have a lot of practice with it because your nervous system is going to say fuck this mm -hmm. this is not safe you are going to get hurt because hanging out in that edge and that fire like that's oof your <laughs> your autonomic nervous system is going to say like are you sure are you sure are you sure are you sure the whole damn time which is and it'll get louder Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sometimes it gets louder until there's almost an eruption, right? Like we almost have like a metamorphosis. Sometimes we can like break down and just cry for no reason, or we can just notice these strange thoughts come in of like, you know, in really bad situations, it can be, I want to kill myself. Even if everything's been going really, really well, and you're up on a new frontier, it's just your, your ego's way of looking for a way out. Mm -hmm. right like all these eruptions can happen and then even then if you hang in the tension you you will go deeper and or beyond you you will expand into an experience of living that you've literally never had access to before mm. right you are actually developing new neurological connections new autonomic relational abilities to trust that life is on your side, that you don't have to turn back, that you don't have to stay in a little box. Right. And that's right. super empowering as well, as you can imagine. Totally. Right. Because that's that rebirth experience that you're actually seeking when you're going into that discomfort. Um, so you mentioned something there about the container. And I think I'd love to talk about that for a minute. I came upon a realization that, or an insight this year I'm going to take right into religion, but I'm going to land back where we're at right now. I I was dealing, I was reading all these philosophies and theologies that assert the notion that the idea that God is love, and that's a hard thing to get your mind around, but it's something I've really wrestled with in my life. And, you know, because what that's asserting is that the basic substructure of all of this is love in some way, that it's all for you in some way. And when I would read these theologies, especially in the evangelical Christian world about God being love, I would, the, I would realize like, I'm like, what you're describing isn't love. Like you're describing this really interesting quid pro quo relationship between subject and object. It's not what love is though. But I realized something massive in working with my coach who modeled and held a container 
that I could literally unravel in, right? I could literally, like, there was, it was no matter what, there's a sort of unconditional acceptance of who I am. And I've never actually known that level of love, right? I've always thought in some way, there's got to be some mask I wear in order to be accepted. And so until that level of love is modeled for you, because I was trying to figure out how are all of these theologians espousing love, but coming nowhere near it. And I realized, well, because you can only experience love to the degree in which it's been modeled for you and which you understand it yourself. And I really am thinking about this sort of connection, this uh, secure attachment in much the same way. Like if you've never experienced, it's a quantum leap to get there by yourself without having the container, without having someone that can model a secure connection for you, that can model a sort of unconditional acceptance and love for you. It's a huge leap to think that you could get there through, definitely not through willpower, but even through your, by yourself, you just, you don't know what it is, you know? I don't know if that makes sense to you, but it's like, it's almost too unknown to even grapple with. Absolutely. It makes so much sense. Eckhart Tolle talks a lot about that, how you know, we tend to put characters in our culture on pedestals who are absolute anomalies especially spiritual teachers who just one day had an awakening uh-huh. i mean that that's that, him though that, isn't it yeah <laughs> okay okay sorry but he he mentions that it's so you know it's it's not the norm and it's it's very 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 few people and in fact it's quite dangerous to expect that mm-hmm. and some of the familiarity of doing it your own or maybe the stubbornness of wanting to do it your own is a part of the avoidant attachment mm. system so that means that for you love meant that you're supposed to be an island unto yourself mm. that you're supposed to figure it out by yourself and we don't consciously think this right it's, again it's the same part of your nervous system that beats your heart like we don't control that so it's you know it can like you said unless you have another person mirroring reciprocity responsiveness consistency your nervous system doesn't even know what that is how can it construct something out of midair it can't right right? it It actually needs to have a road map and because we're mammals it's not optional to do it in isolation Our biology over hundreds of thousands of years has been perfectly modeled and developed to work in connection with other human beings. Mm. So it's, it's, it's an absolute misnomer and just complete myth as well to be able to do this on your own. Now it doesn't mean you lose autonomy or you can't do anything on your own. What we're talking about is changing fundamental patterns of self-protection and connection. And so with your coach, you modeled that beautifully, how they've been able to create a container for you that your nervous system is perceiving as safety so that you can have access to these sometimes really confronting, threatening, expansive, wonderful new experiences. Mm -hmm. Just like when we're children and we're exploring, let's say the woods and we go in the woods for the first time, you know, we, we need to know that the different paths are safe, right? We need to know, okay, it's safe to go into the woods or it's safe to go into this new part of the woods. And we need to have somebody to guide us. 
right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, the hero's journey is such a beautiful piece to throw in there as well. Joseph Campbell says, if, you know, if you find yourself in dark places and you're following a path, you're not in the right place. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm misquoting him, but essentially that's the idea. Mm -hmm. And what we are actually supposed to do is be at the forest edge when there's no path, it's overgrown, it looks really scary, and we go in from there and we carve our own path. But the nervous system needs human connection in order to do that. Mm. So, so well said. I, so, I mean, we really covered all the things that I wanted to talk about in this. Um, is there, is there any aspect of this that in your mind and in your work, you feel like we've skirted around or missed or, or would be worth mentioning? Um, I mean, there's a few things that we could go, we could go a little deeper into. It just depends how much time we have. But I mentioned at the beginning that we could dive a little bit into polyvagal theory which is a lot of what we're talking about, but I think it might help bring some of these concepts like down to earth for sure. people and are really like, oh, this is real. This isn't just an idea. Because sometimes when we throw out ideas that the ego can wrap itself around, they can easily be discarded, mm -hmm. right? And then we can be overwhelmed with all of these concepts. Or worse, presumed to be understood, <laughs> right? Oof, there you go, yeah. So we talked a lot about threat response, wiring towards self-protection or wiring towards connection. In the autonomic nervous system, we actually have four different pathways that the nervous system is able to do that. We used to think that there was only two, which is parasympathetic and sympathetic. Most people have heard that. That's basically your sympathetic system is your fight or flight response and your parasympathetic, they labeled it rest and digest. Mm. So, the misunderstanding there is that with that older model, which by the way, was developed in ancient Greece when some guy was dissecting pigs and monkeys, we still use that model. Oh, interesting. So it's very, very outdated, but it implies that you should feel safe, rested, relaxed, and connected in the absence of a fight or flight response. But we know that that is absolutely not true, especially people who feel that they cannot slow down and they are only comfortable and safe when they're going at 100 miles an hour. Yeah. And the second they sit down on the couch and they have nothing to do, their autonomic stress response goes through the roof, right? And, and so, what's that a symptom of? Because that's got to, I mean, I don't know if anyone's named that the Western wound, but maybe we should. Because I think so many people are, are feeling that. Totally. Yeah. So it can be a, a byproduct of all kinds of different trauma. And unfortunately, in the Western world, it is exacerbated through how we model connection, which essentially just means that we put that type of behavior on a pedestal. Mm. Right. So it just it just makes whatever is pre-existing worse because we're thinking we're always looking for connection, whether we realize it or not. So if we're getting the message that, hey, you're a badass, we accept you, you're awesome, if you measure your worth based on your productivity, whew, now you've got, like, now you're fucked. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because you, like, you're trying to move towards connection, it's not working for you, and what you've been told is a solution is actually digging you a deeper hole. Yes, right. so important. Yeah, so that kind of gets caught, like, it happens in layers there, kind of... Mm -hmm on the micro level to the macro level, but it's all very real. And your nervous system is neurocepting all of it 
all the time. So nothing gets lost in terms of neuroception. Hmm. Perception, things can fall through the cracks, but not neuroception. So we have this new model, which is the polyvagal theory, actually has four different pathways that the nervous system can go down, either towards self-protection, which would be one of those is the fight or flight response, which is actually two different pathways, fight or flight. A lot of military veterans, first responders are gonna be real accustomed to being in fight. Mm -hmm. you know, flight is often not an option. But for some people, you know, they oscillate between the two. It's like avoidance and, and aggression. Mm -hmm. So that's one. Then we have a very new part of our nervous system evolutionarily, which is called the ventral vagal nerve. So this is that real missing link in the old model of the nervous system because our ventral vagal nerve actually needs to be toned and activated and healthy through responsive, reciprocal, consistent human connection. So if we don't get that in childhood, or maybe we get it, but it's not consistent, or it comes with caveats, well, it's not always going to be safe for you to be in your ventral vagal nerve. So biologically, you cannot sustain the feeling of connection for very long because it's too uncomfortable. Mm. You're anticipating so much threat. Then the fourth piece, so we've got our flight, fight, which are both a part of the sympathetic nervous system. So we get blood in our limbs. We get, you know, our eyes get big. We move forward. We're like ready to go. Mm -hmm. It's also just our mobilization part of our nervous system. So it's not bad. We need it to do anything. Go to, you go to the gym, you're in your sympathetic nervous system. The fourth one is the dorsal vagal response. Now this, this sucker is the oldest part of us as a species we share this with fish okay so when i said the ventral vagal nerve is relatively new we're talking 15 million years old in terms of the species development mm -hmm. the dorsal vagal part of our nervous system is 500 million years old so that gets activated when our mobilization system isn't being effective at taking away the threat so what happens, we call this the polyvagal ladder because you can envision a ladder. Ventral vagal is at the top, sympathetic is in the middle, dorsal vagal is at the response. Let's say everything's good, we're hanging out in vagal, we perceive threat and we start to dip down the ladder into our sympathetic reaction, which is good. We need to be able to get away or do something about threat. But what if we're caught in a trauma cycle where that sympathetic reaction doesn't actually take us away from the threat. Maybe the threat is in us. Mm. Maybe we are threatening ourselves. Maybe we're ruthlessly beating ourselves up. Maybe we continue to go to relationships that don't feel safe. So our coping strategies to help us feel better actually increase the neuroception of threat. So what happens, your sympathetic system revs up even more because it's like, okay, well now we've got even more threat. We got to work harder at getting away from this. Ooh, but it's still not working. Eventually, that 500 million year old system will kick in and just say, fuck this, there's no point, it's not working, we need to play dead. And so that system shuts everything down. And because it's so old, it's the foundation of everything, our endocrine system, oxygenation to the brain, it controls everything. And when that's activated, we lose access to our prefrontal cortex so we're no longer thinking anything new 
any thoughts that you have are going to be like old, old stuff. And we retreat way, way, way back into the reptilian part of our brain. Hmm. And we are just shut down. Total survival pattern. That's it. Total survivor. So survivor. (laughs) (laughs) Survival pattern. Yeah. It's really hard to get out of that because your, your body's in energy conservation mode. And so here's where a lot of these attachment patterns, the disorganized pattern really becomes super obvious because in order, a lot of people, in order to get out of that dorsal vagal response, will come up with a strategy of get up, you piece of crap. You got to go. You're like, what are you doing? So they actually use self-punishment to just get them just enough uh-huh. out of the dorsal response moving again right because movement gets you out of shutdown just like a rabbit who's like in a freeze response hiding from a a lynx or a fox or something it needs to freeze its system well when the threat goes away the rabbit doesn't just chill and hang out there it will run as fast as it can away from that location Mm. that's a natural response we're not supposed to stay in, in dorsal but the problem is we used actually a fair amount of threat to get us out of the dorsal vagal response. And now we have fear of going back there. Mm. So fear perpetuates this cycle of, I need to work harder. I need to go, 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 go. We start to burn out. We can't sustain it. Oh no. Oh no. Oh no. I'm, I can't slow down. I need to go harder. That sympathetic ramps up. And guess what, you know, within a week's time, a month's time, whatever it is, you find yourself back in that complete shutdown response. And over time, that ventral vagal nerve really starts to atrophy. And we no longer spend a whole lot of time there because we oscillate between the sympathetic and the dorsal response. And now biologically, it's really, really hard to get out of that cycle. That feels so important because I think, I mean, so many of us use that sort of self-loathing to get ourselves going. And there's, you're unknowingly, as you just mentioned, putting a huge ceiling on your ability to, for that to one, keep working and two, for it to get you anywhere other than just simply moving again. Um, and so I think that's, that, that's something that's just so important to recognize. You know, I'm also thinking as you're talking about these, I'm, I'm wondering, and I think, I think Carl Jung tied archetypes to instincts for this reason. But as, as you're mentioning this oscillation, for example, between fight or flight even, like you're, that, that's almost exactly what's happening when we look at something like the weakling and the tyrant, right? The, the tyrant, the underbelly of the tyrant is the weakling. And so they're sort of in that back and forth. They'll, they'll find themselves oscillating back and forth between deflation from the world and then over inflating their sense of ego. And I'm just wondering how many of these psychological concepts are just inextricably linked and tied to the nervous system. And of course, whenever you have a sensation, whenever you have a feeling your mind is going to do what your mind does or your brain is going to do what it does and add a narrative to that feeling. And unfortunately with, with what we're talking about here, the narrative could be nowhere near correct. Mm, Absolutely. And you know, any kind of archetype or philosophy is really, you know, man's brilliant prefrontal cortex way of making sense symbolically 
of what we're experiencing biologically. Yes. Because think about, you know, a hundred years ago, like, you know, you, you wouldn't be able to describe, oh, I'm in a dorsal state. And I, I know this because my nervous system is, you know, none of that was relevant, right? But it was still a part of our experience. And so we create these, these archetypes mm. to understand the depth of the experience and it's real. And now we're at a point in science and medicine, trauma, just understanding how trauma works in the human body that we can integrate those two experiences and say, hey, they're both real. They're both one in the same. It's just different manifestations of it. It's different ways to explain it. Totally. Yeah. Man, well, thank you so much for sharing all this with, with our audience. I think these concepts, even to start becoming aware of, are just so important. Um, and then, of course, like if you're ready to like really do the work, working with someone like yourself um, could be massively beneficial. Can you tell us real quick where we can find you, follow you, and also what you have going on if people are interested in these ideas and want to try to work through them? Yeah, so really simple. Right now, it's all on Instagram, so Body by Jules 11. They've got a lot of content about what it, what we've talked about here on there. I try to educate as much as possible so people really feel safe before reaching out. And then right now I'm really excited about the nervous system recovery course, which is beginning next Friday, which will be July 17th. And that's where we're gonna do a deep dive in a group setting with a regulated coach so that we can practice some of these concepts that you've heard in this podcast and really dive deep and see how they apply to you. And then start, you know, owning that and taking responsibility for that in a way that's never before felt safe to do so. And you get to do it in an environment of like, badass human beings. Right now, it's it's men. So I'm calling it the brotherhood. We've got a lot of uh, veterans, first responders in there. So if that's, you know, if you want to be a part of this in a group of men who really get you and get your experiences, this is where it's at. Cool. Well, thank you so much. I'd love to link that stuff up in the show notes of this episode. Thank you for joining me. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Cool. Thanks, guys. <laughs>